Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, welcome to the Dogs Program. We are the Defenders of Government Schools, D-O-G-S. It's good to have your company here. You've just been listening to Fanfare of the Common Man, which you do around about 12 o'clock every Saturday now for decades, because that's how long we've been around defending government schools, because they need defending. Today on the program, we have a, an interesting lineup, as you would imagine, coming up to a federal election, a very interesting lineup of um, discussion points, issues, and, of course, our Great State School of the Week, which we'll be highlighting later in the program. Uh, this one's in New South Wales, way out in the back of nowhere. A little place called Ivanhoe. But we'll come to that later. Um, before we do that, of course, we're going to start off with um, Jean's press release, which is number 790 what, Jean? One. 791, here we go. 791st press release, which you can get on our website. And Jean has been, being a lawyer that Jean is, she's been interested in talking about education and tax policy because we often talk about money where it should go, and the answer is to government schools, if you're going to educate everyone all the time. Um, but where does it come from before it gets to the school is the question, and taxation is part of it. And um, Jean's got something to say, so go away, Jean. Okay, press release 791, Tax Policy and Separation of Church and State. As election noise ramps up, oh, and isn't it noisy this, this time around, uh, listeners, Prime Minister Morrison promises to denude the Treasury and reward wealthy income earners by $77 billion over 10 years. That's the um, finding of the Australian Institute, while opposition leader Bill Shorten commits verbal trip-ups on superannuation policies. And we see pictures of angry old people. Well, this lady is old, and um, I don't have any superannuation, so I'm uh, quite happy to uh, be unhappy for the young people of this country. But tax policy is a complicated subject, and you'll find lots of opinions about it, often heated ones. While Australians may disagree on how much they should be taxed and what those taxes ought to pay for, there's one thing that we should all agree on. No taxpayer should be compelled to subsidise religion. Unfortunately, since the dog's case in 1981, we have drifted very far from this idea. Religious institutions in Australia receive ever-increasing billions and billions and billions of dollars in both direct and also indirect or tax expenditure monies from our Treasury 
in the form of exemptions. And what do they receive them for? For the running of their institutions, their industries, if you like, their education industry in particular. The Catholic Church, for example, is one of the wealthiest institutions exempt from taxation obligations, as well as the one of the largest employers in Australia. And just sit and think what that really means. It is one of the largest employers in Australia, and it's a private institution with billions of public monies, which means that it can discriminate as to who it will employ, whether that is in obvious ways or less obvious ways in forms of preferences. But until the current presidency in America, that country, the United States, has held the line on matters of church and state where we have drifted from it. Founding fathers in America in 1776, like those in Australia in 1898, were seeking to protect religion, not harm it, when they ensured that religious institutions should support themselves and not depend upon the state. It's called the voluntary principle. It's actually the private principle, if you think about it. Under the Trump regime, things are rapidly changing, however, in this arena. Americans United for Separation of Church and State provides the following information. And I have to thank uh, some people on the Twitter sphere, in the Twitter sphere, for sending me this information. Private school voucher plans that use public funds to subsidise private religious schools are operating in some states. We have them here, of course, but we, it's under a different name. We have vouchers of approximately 12 to 14,000 per student and sometimes more uh, in, in our um, private schools here. Those are the amounts that are given to the schools for each student. So these private school voucher plans in America are used to subsidise the private religious schools and they're operating uh, in some of the states and President Donald Trump, uh, Trump, Trump, Trump and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos have proposed a nationwide tuition tax credit scheme which is a type of backdoor voucher plan that would cost the taxpayer billions. In addition, faith-based initiatives continue to proliferate. Under Trump, some taxpayer-subsidised religious institutions have boldly declared that they have a right to take money from the public, yet refuse to serve certain classes of people, a situation that Americans United is still challenging in the federal court in South Carolina. The framers of the American Constitution in 1776 believed that houses of worship should not receive tax dollars, let alone education institutions. They didn't feel this way because they were hostile to religion, because Americans in the uh, 18th century, and certainly Australians in the 19th century, were in fact very religious, much more than Australians are in the current generation, I assure you. No, they were never hostile to religion, far from it. 
while they clearly believed that forcing people to support religion against their will was a violation of the fundamental right of conscience. The Founding Fathers also understood that expecting faith communities to stand on their own two feet was good for religion. In 1785, James Madison penned the Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments, a broadside that blasted a proposal to force all residents of Virginia to pay a tax to support Christian ministers. The document itself is essentially a list of 15 reasons why church taxes are a terrible idea. The entire thing is brilliant, but point seven is especially relevant today. And the dogs and I make no apology for going back to 1785 to remind ourselves of why, as to why we should not be paying billions and billions for church schools in this country. Because this is what Madison said, Experience witnesseth that ecclesiastical establishments instead of maintaining the purity and efficacy of religion, have had a contrary operation. During almost 15 centuries has the legal establishment of Christianity been on trial. What have been its fruits? More or less in all places, pride and indolence in the clergy, ignorance and servility in the laity, in both, superstition, bigotry and persecution. Inquire of the teachers of Christianity for the ages in which it appeared in its greatest luster. Those of every sect point to the ages prior to its incorporation with civil polity. Now far be it from me anyway to paraphrase Madison but he's essentially saying here that evidence shows that church taxes haven't helped religion they've ruined it and they're ruining it at the moment in Australia he points out that the Christian faith received state support for 1,500 years since the time of Constantine and this led the clergy to become arrogant and lazy it also sparked ignorance among lay members and fostered persecution. And of course, here in Australia, we've discovered that it's, it's um, led to even worse, terrible things happening in some of the church institutions. Madison recommends that you ask ministers. They'll tell you that Christianity, Christianity did better before it took state money. And Madison was right, and we can see evidence of this in the world today. Consider the countries that still have taxpayer-supported, state-sponsored religion. They tend to be either nightmarish theocracies, where you can't have minority religious people or groups uh, believing what they wish to believe, or they can be places where religion plays a largely ceremonial role with dwindling numbers of people actually bothering to attend services. And that's what we're starting to get, of course, in Australia. 
America needs to re-embrace one of its founding principles. No one should be taxed to pay for the religion of another. And this is the position of the dogs also. And it should be the position of the High Court when they look at Section 116. No one should be taxed to pay for the religious beliefs of another. So there's also a mention here of Benjamin Franklin, who had a great quote on this topic. When a religion is good, I conceive that it will support itself. And when it cannot support itself, and God does not take care to support it, so that its professors are obliged to call for the help of the civil power, it's a sign, I apprehend, of its being a bad one. So that is the dog's position. We're not against religion, but we're certainly against any person being taxed, the state, in other words, having the coercion power to tax any person for the religion of somebody else, particularly a religion to which they do not adhere. And that is what is happening here in Australia to the tune of billions and billions and billions of dollars increasing every year when we are expected to not only divide our children into religious groups, sectarianism it's called, but we are also forced to pay taxes to promote the religions or religions in which individuals do not believe. Thank you very much, Jane. That's press release number 791 for here on the Dogs Program. Um, a very strict principle um, and a very good principle. I like the Benjamin Franklin quote in particular about the quality of religion in terms of its goodness or badness. Um, relates specifically to its ability to stand on its own two feet without the support of anyone else propping it up, which certainly all religions in Australia do. All religions in Australia are propped up by the federal and state governments. I wish we'd stop doing it, certainly in the education sphere. Look, um, I have an in-depth um, thing coming up. It's going to take a little while because I'm going to talk about the pressures that parents in Australia feel when it comes to educational choices. Um, often here on The Dogs we have discussion about the difference between educating my child and educating the children. And there's been a number of things come to light in the last week which highlight the tensions between these two choices because the the underlying circumstances of the Australian education market, because it is a market, I can't say it's not, the market here in Australia means that the power of parents making choices for their children are actually destroying the education for the children. That's all of them. The, the forces of, of marketisation in individuals in Australia at the moment over a generation are now destroying the education system in Australia as we see it. And I've got some evidence for this and I'd like to share it with you after, after this. Did you know that women's votes can change this country? This federal election, let's think about what's important to us, our families, and our multicultural communities when deciding how to vote. Are you enrolled? Do you know how to vote? Visit www.harmonyvotes.org.au to find out more about why your vote is important and how to make it count. Authorised by the Harmony Alliance, 
Migrant and Refugee Women for Change and the National Ethnic and Multicultural Broadcasters Council. 3CR supporters. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. Um, you're listening to us on the WWWs or maybe in your car, but um, or you might even listen to the podcast. And if you're not, you might want to check up with me and get onto that podcast. It's available um, on the 3CR website, www.3cr.org.au. But um, all that out of the way, I promised you an in-depth analysis of the forces in Australia, the competing forces, the forces of what we will call here in, in the context of Australia what we call parental choice, which is a parent saying, I get to make the choices for my child's education in the school that I like and I am the one responsible for my child, which is in fact just a very sensible um, and protective thing for a parent to say. But in itself, if left to run rampant, um, those sentiments destroy the education system as a whole. You think, well, how can a bunch of loving parents, because that's what they are, loving and caring parents, wanting to do the best for their children, destroy an education system? Well, let me explain it to you in, in these terms. Um, a couple of weeks ago in the United States, something very interesting happened. There were allegations of parents who were cheating and they were bribing top-tier universities in the United States to secure their children's admission now, this kind of got out into the media in the United States and um, there were members of the Hollywood elite that were involved in this and so therefore that makes a very good media story. Um, I'm referring now to an article actually on this by Kelly Bosefield who's writing in The Conversation um, on the 6th of April this year. Now, what she's saying is that the US attorney over there in the United States said, and I quote, there can be no separate college admission system for the wealthy. The parents' actions were denounced in the US in a system that claims it does not and will not allow parents to purchase academic success. Now, I'm sure many parents in Australia, when listening to this, going, what do you mean? Is that, we that, do that all the time. We do that all the time here in Australia. Purchasing your way to a better education is the Australian way, and many parents, loving parents, choose to do this for their children. But, of course... The reality in Australia is that the education system feeds into this choice that parents make. In Australia and elsewhere, the system doesn't favour academic merit, but parental wealth. Instead of a meritocracy, we see, and, and Kelly um, quotes, oh, she makes up this term, I think it's an interesting one, a parentocracy. The actions and wealth of a parent act as key determinants in the child's academic success. Now, caregivers... Using privilege to buy their children's way into and through education is not a Hollywood anomaly, nor, indeed, the domain of the elites. Governments and education officials may claim education systems are pillars of meritocracy, with effort and ability being keys to success, but the middle class in Australia have long recognised 
and have been long recognised for their ability to use their economic and cultural resources to negotiate education systems on behalf of their own beloved children. It's called an aristocracy. Well, in Australia, I think we don't quite have an aristocracy, but... Yet. But there are several ways of doing this. And, Jean, I mean, you are a parent, I know, because I'm your child. Um, You are a parent, but you can enrol your child in academic tutoring, specifically to prepare them for selective school tests. Um, You could have a child attend NAPLAN skills days and camps after school and in the school holidays. You, as a parent, could buy practice textbooks and additional resources to prepare your children for standardised exams including NAPLAN or HSC or VCE, depending upon which state you're in. You could engage academically able children in private tuition to ensure that they have an academic edge. And you can buy real estate now in Australia. You can go and buy a house in a catchment area enabling enrolment to preferred public schools. And I'll I'll be coming back to this later because there's been some extraordinary revelations from around Australia about how this particular rule is increasing day by day. Or, of course, in Australia, you can use the most obvious system, which is to participate in school choice markets, including enrolling children in private schools with extra resources and state-of-the-art facilities. Now, it's too simplistic, however, to write off the actions and spending of parents as a personal choice made only to seek educational advantage for their beloved children. The way we parent reflects more of an individual's choice Parenting practices echo the society we parent in and the institutions that we interact with. Let's consider NAPLAN and the MySchool website, which is, we get data from it, but it's a, it's a contentious thing in itself. Now, the introduction of NAPLAN in 2008 and the MySchool site was opened up in 2010. Now, this was a significant change for Australian parents and their beloved children. For the first time, they received student reports that measured not only their child's individual achievements, but their achievements against other students in their school and against a national average. My school allowed comparison of a whole school result with other schools nationwide. Now, the government touted both policies as means of individualism, providing freedom and opportunity for parents to enhance their informed choice, inverted commas in decisions involving their child's education. But for some parents, the new information resulted in new pressures and indeed new obligations. As a case in point, research tells us that NAPLAN has resulted in anxiety for some parents and many are concerned about how NAPLAN results are used. In one study, parents said they were worried about requests from secondary schools to bring NAPLAN reports along to interviews for high school prior to their enrolment. For many, this means that NAPLAN is not just a source of information. Poor results could pose an educational risk. And parents are trying to negate that risk on behalf of their beloved children. Now, to alleviate perceived risks, parents are participating in an ever-growing NAPLAN market. The sale of NAPLAN practice textbooks, for example, has almost doubled from 2011 to 2012, and it's still constantly growing. Private tutoring and coaching colleges offering targeted NAPLAN services have seen exponential growth. An estimated one in seven Australian schools are now being tutored in NAPLAN outside of school. 
Under these conditions, parents using their economic resources is about more than educational advantage. Arguably, it's also about an obligation to act to guard against educational risk. Now, parents don't act alone. And the German sociologist Beck and, and their colleague uh, Gernsheim argue parenting and parents' actions must be understood in the context of policy, in the institutions, and how this translates to what the parents feel they can do. And, this, and they call this process individualization. In these conditions, and, and, and this is what they say, it is no longer enough to accept that a child just is as it is. The child becomes the focus of a parental effort. There is a whole new market with enticing offers to increase your child, your beloved child's competence. And soon enough, options begin to look like new obligations. Now, the key word here is obligation. Individualization is not individualism. Individualism assumes that parents actually have a choice. Individualism provides parents with freedom and opportunity to act. Individualization is the obligation to act, an obligation to protect against real or perceived educational risk. Now, if we were to critique parents' practice, we must also critique the system that they parent in. With this in mind, the reason behind parents intervening in their children's education may be more complicated than we think. Now, what she's saying here is that Let's not just indulge in parent bashing. Parents are working in the environment, and the environment, and this, the, the argument is the environment says, you have to do these things or you don't love your child. It's a bit like teacher bashing, isn't it? You must enrol your child in a private school if you have the wealth or you're not doing the right thing by that child. You must get them a tutor for their NAPLAN results, otherwise you're a bad parent. Now, I think there's truth to that. I think many parents talk about these things in those terms and the sense, and I think it's an important thing to say, the sense of wanting to love my child. If you were to tell a parent that what you are doing on behalf of your child is to the detriment of someone else, in taking as many resources as you can from your child from the state means that another poorer child doesn't get, as, doesn't get what they need, you will find a very large number of middle-class parents who will get very angry. They will say, no, 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 I'm just doing what I do. I can only do what I do. And I think they are reflecting what this woman's calling individualization, an obligation that they feel they have to um, mitigate the risks in this very, now in Australia, tumultuous education environment. Now, before I move on, I'd just like to say that this parents loving their child and doing their best they can doesn't always stay on the right side of the law. And something's happened around Australia, which I think is fascinating. I've been prefacing this for months now, but it's really starting to come out. But we, I'll tell you more about um, parents breaking the law because they love their children so much after this.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program. That was the Prisoner's Chorus from Fidelia. And now I'm going to tell you more about parents and the prison that they've made for themselves. And this is extraordinary. Now, I've been prefacing this because in Australia, over the last five or six years, there's been developed a new little educational subculture. And the new educational subculture is this idea of the good state school. The good state school, not the bad state school. Now, in around Melbourne, there are a number of what they call good state schools. NAPLAN's created this. My school website's created this. It's a, it's a school where everyone wants to get into because it's a state school, so it's free at point of purchase. So it's not a private school, but it's not um, a rubbish school. It's where everyone does good things and they get good results and all the parents agree it's the place you want your child to go. Now, to get your child into that school, you have to, in many cases, live in a catchment area. There is often, in a good state school, um, a quota of kids you can, that can come from outside of the local area, but they still have to serve their local area. And so if a child lives in the local area, they get to go to the good school. Now, I'm pretty sure you know where I'm going with this, because many staff at popular good public schools are turning to sleuth to catch parents who are trying to cheat out of enrolment catchment rules. I'm quoting now from an article by Jordan Baker in the Channel 9 um, of Fairfax Press, in fact in the Sydney Morning Herald on March the 28th. Um, They wrote that one school caught seven families using the same enrolment address. (laughs) Another uncovered a forged signature and one found out the student's family was sharing their address with friends after spotting a fake tenancy agreement. Just a minute, Robert. Before you start before people start blaming parents and so on, the problem is that the government isn't producing enough good state schools. Oh, that's the problem. That's the obvious let's solution. Not, let's not blame the parents. No, 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 but no, no, but no, but they are working, and I, this, this individual, this individualism, <laughs> this individual. Parents are, are responding to an environment that's been created for them. I'm not, I mean, I've been parent bashing for some time now, but now I'm being brought around to the idea that they are just working like, like poor predators <laughs> in an environment where there's not a lot of prey. Now, the solution is obviously to, to, to have all state schools to be of equal standard. And if a school is not a good state school, then do something about it. Well, in some areas, there aren't even state schools to choose. Uh, for the poor parents, this is a part of the problem too, because the area, the market, has been taken over by the private sector. Thanks to Mr. Kennett here in Victoria, he closed a lot of our schools. Indeed. Now, public schools um, prioritise students in their catchment zones, but some are so popular due to strong results or good reputations, and this is where the reputation thing kicks in. I think it's fascinating that there are a few places left for out-of-area applicants, prompting some parents to go to the drastic lengths that they have to pretend that they are the locals. In one case, a highly sought-after Strathfield Girls High School, senior staff door-knocked a home to check a prospective student's address, only to find the people who lived there didn't know the applicant and hadn't been there for years. It was also noted the agent listed on the tenancy agreement did not work for the applicant, but the signature on the agreement was not his, but had been forged, said a letter indeed from the deputy principal to the regional director, which was then released under freedom of information to this reporter. In another case, at an unnamed school that went to fair trading, the enrolment officer gave a statement explaining that he had a funny feeling about a student's address. He did a search and found seven families enrolled at the same house. 
Because of our school's record in achieving high ATARs, parents will competitively seek to enrol their children here as a priority, with a view to having that expectation of a high ATAR result put their child in good stead to gain admission to university, um, the office, the, the regional office in New South Wales explained. Now, at Kalara High, a popular school on the North Shore, a family arrived at the office to enrol their child, but it all sounded very suspicious, a staff member wrote. I checked with the address in the lease that they had given me and saw that there was a current family living at the address. A school staff member wrote, I told them I was rejecting the application and then they had just had to admit that they weren't actually living here. In another case at the same school, students sent on the first day of school without being enrolled. The father tried a false address, then a granny flat address, before going to the police station to complain about his treatment. Now, a principal can discontinue an enrolment if it was based on false information. What happens if parents have got children and they're actually homeless? What about homeless parents with children? Because I'm not sure that this is... Or just in a caravan. There's plenty of those too. It's a bit of a worry here, Robert. I think I have to stand up for the parents here. Yeah, 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 you you, you go for your life. Um, A principal can discontinue an enrolment, but the decision has to be improved by the regional director, and it's this FOI of this correspondence that this report has got hold of. Now, some of Sydney's most in-demand schools include Cherrybrook Tech High, Cheltenham Girls High, Ponds High and Homebush Boys High. Families must provide 100 points of ID for enrolment. Chris Preston, president of the Secretary Principals Council, said verifying enrolment information was extremely time-consuming for in-demand schools. And it's, um, it's also worse than having to open up a bank account by the same, by the same token. Yeah, principals in those schools will tell you that one of their most time-consuming things is responding to appeals for parents who are rejected. People will write to their local politician to complain. The member passes it on to the minister. It comes back to the education department, the local director. It's not just the school. Everyone has to deal with this. In some schools, we're talking about a really significant problem. Now, Glenn Curran, the director of Chabrick Real Estate in Kalara, said schools were top on the priority list for buyers in the area. When, the, when they come to look for a house, the first thing they ask is, what school is this in the catchment for? Second is transport. And third, sometimes, the actual quality of the house. A spokesman for the Department of Education said that public schools have an obligation to enrol students living in the local area. Principals can take steps to verify a child's residential address. And so on and so forth. You see... That's just corruption. That's just people lying to get themselves into a good school because they don't think the school down the around is good enough for their child. They're responding to a marketplace. The solution to the problem, and I've always said this, well, actually, I, won't, no, I will say this. The solution to the problem for educating the children is to have every state school of an equal quality. If it's not, then do something about it. However, the solution to the problem for my child, my beloved child, is for them to have an advantage. Now, if that advantage is absolute, that's great. That is to say, if their education is just good and that is what I want, that is great. But many parents don't see it that way. If the advantage of my child is a relative advantage, that is, they are better than the child next to them, they are more likely to get the job than the child in the school down the road, then that's also an advantage. And so, indeed, for people who are succeeding in this system, succeeding in the Australian education system, and there are some people, and they're all wealthy, to change the system to make it equitable actually erodes their relative advantage and is not in their interest to improve the public education system all around. 
And that is, I'm sorry to say, something we at the dogs have to fight against. And we do, because we want a goal-centred education for every child, and the only way you can do that is release the taxpayers' funding to only schools that enrol all children, free at point, free at point of entry, that are that are not sectarian, they don't care what your colour of your skin is, they don't care what your religion is, they don't care about any of that. And the only schools in Australia that do that, of course, are public schools, which is why we have to defend them. More after this. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for worries of the Aboriginal resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. Melbourne's newest film festival is about to hit the screens. Now put this in your diary, the 26th to the 29th of April. The inaugural Birrarunga Film Festival will showcase Indigenous films from across the globe. An incredible selection of feature films, shorts packages, conversations and even virtual reality. Now head to www.birrarunga.world. That's B-I-R-R-A-R-A-N-G-A.world and book your tickets. See you at ACME for the most exciting and global Indigenous Film Festival right here in Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and available, of course, on the 3CR website, www.3cr.org.au and, indeed, the Dogs website, which is www.adogs.info. That's adogs, one word, .info. Now, this whole idea of my child and the children gets played out more than just people trying to scam their way into a good public school. There is an entire schooling system in Australia that is based on the concept of exclusivity and privilege, and that is the private school system. It is also in Australia ridiculously funded by us, the taxpayers. Now, in an article by Maureen Mulhorn in the Educational Journal of the New South Wales Teachers Federation just in this April, I think she's put it down in the context not just of what I've been saying, but in the broader context of the election. She says that our country is now at a crossroads. As a nation, we can decide to give our teachers in public schools the resources they need for the task at hand, or we continue to advantage those private schools that are overfunded. As a nation, we can decide to either improve the learning outcomes for millions of Australian children into the future, or continue a privilege of a minority that are already advantaged. It is a simple, moral choice. Some children or all children. The original Gonski Review established a benchmark, the minimum level of recurrent funding and resources teachers in particular schools needed to order to do their job. It is called the SRS, the Schooling Resource Standard. It is recognised that in some schools the demand for teachers was more complex, more onerous, requiring greater resources, and so additional funding through equity loadings was to be delivered. Now these resources started to arrive in early 2014, but only months later... In May, 
And then the Abbott Coalition government cut a massive $30 billion from schools in its first federal budget, gutting the whole thing. Fast forward to 2017, and then Treasurer Scott Morrison delivered a budget that resulted in $14 billion funding shortfall for public schools. It was his budget that effectively tore up the signed funding agreements with states and territory governments. This meant that public school teachers would never receive the resources they needed to do their jobs. Indeed, it was almost every private school under the Morrison plan will be over the schooling resource standard, and every public school will never even touch it. To exacerbate the enormous gap in resources for schools, last September the Morrison government gifted an additional $4.6 billion to private schools only. But it's not only in the area of school funding that this government's myopic vision for this nation's future is evident, says Maureen Mulhorn from the New South Wales Teachers Federation. She says, while its school's funding policy will limit the potential of so many children in the early years of schooling, Future training and education opportunities for those children have been compromised by the sustained assault, and we've talked about this, on the TAFE system. There are now fewer Australians in training in Australia than when the current government took office. There are 140,000 fewer apprenticeships than when they took office. Funding for vocational education and training has been cut by $3 billion since they took office. Morrison, as Treasurer in 2018, cut apprenticeships by $270 million. The most recent federal budget failed to even mention TAFE, despite the enrolment loss of 24% due to funding cuts. And despite vet fee help costing the Australian community more than $5 billion, much of which was handed to dodgy for-profit providers, the Morrison government continues with an agenda to privatise, continues with an agenda to privatise the VET system, even though it is currently... A disaster. I don't think people fully realise how dangerous the Morrison government is for the future economic and social well-being of this country. Forget about them being good economists. They're disaster country. Yep. So we're not telling you how to vote. We never do here on the dogs, do we, Jean? We are an apolitical organisation, but I can tell you right now, the current government has been a disaster for education in Australia. But I will get to the point. A lot of other things too. She says, in the future, it's a simple moral choice. Some of the children or all of the children. Anyway, we'll be back after this. I am sailing. I am sailing on the We sail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. Well, thanks, Robert, for all of that interesting material on uh, the position of parents. There's also, of course, the position of teachers and there's also, of course, the funding problem. And um, the Fairfax Media has got some very interesting material. Um, Palavi Singhal uh, has got some very interesting reports on the Grattan Institute and its research. And they have come up with the idea that we should cut Catholic and private school fund and raise the teaching of ATARs, that if you cut the Catholic and private school funding, then you do much better. 
Um, major changes to funding, including the abolition of a 1.2 billion fund for Catholic and independent schools, and introducing strong consequences for universities that don't raise ATAR requirements for teaching degrees, are part of new recommendations from the Grattan Institute for the next Commonwealth Government. Um, they're very concerned about the segregation amongst the schools which is continuing to grow in Australia, in other words, raising the inequality quotient of our society, I assume. Grattan school education expert Peter Gose has said that an analysis comparing countries' total funding per student as a percentage of gross domestic product per capita debunks the notion that Australia is spending more than other similar nations on education. He says that it shows that our total spend per student is lower than comparative countries and shows that we need to take the strategic direction of increasing funding and tilting it strongly towards disadvantaged schools. Well, there's nothing new in that, of course. The problem is that we've never had a successful needs policy because the wealthy uh, schools always game it and the Catholic Church is certainly expert in that. But what is most interesting about this particular uh, article I found were the comments. There were some very interesting comments that ranged from people saying that we should just cease uh, state aid to private schools entirely or um, it's not so much about raising the ATAR standards as it might be the government raising the bar at the school level. But if you raise the bar at the ATAR level, is the government going to pay teachers a more professional wage? The problem is that we are not recognising just how important our teachers are. And when they are actually in the schools, we give them so many jobs that don't actually relate to teaching. But um, uh, you also find Chris Curtis has a great deal to say um, Uh, But we won't go to Chris Curtis. We'll go to somebody else and uh, we'll get Dale to read what they had to say and see if you can guess who it is. Thanks, Jean. Okay, the first comment I've got here is, uh, are we educating parents or children? Reading Chris Curtis and private school representatives spruiking their wares makes me wonder. Why not aim for a future Australia in which we all learn to live, work, eat and learn together and put all our children in first-rate public schools with first-rate teachers supported by our taxes. And let's be prepared to pay that tax and demand that multinationals pay their fair share. The state aid experiment of the last half century has failed dismally. We are dividing our children and creating a nation of haves and have-nots, with governments of oligarchs ready to sell out to the highest bidders. Divide and rule starts at school. Propping up private schools that are not, in the end, privately funded is just stupid. Go to Finland and find out how it can be done differently. And then May 51 says, Agree, these so-called experts want to have their cake and eat it too. We either support private education or pay more for a totally public-funded education similar to European countries. By the way, 
parents' wealth has very little to do with education. All children must be equally treated. Well, unfortunately in Australia, parents' wealth has a lot to do with uh, children's education. And uh, another response was any funding to the Catholic system should have, be, should have to be matched by the same amount from the church. The church cries poor but sits on vast real estates and other assets. It is clearly not poor. In particular, the system of supplying a single dwelling house to the parish priest to live in adjacent to the school and church needs to be urgently reviewed. Many of these houses for priests are prime real estate. They should be sold off to the private market or redeveloped to provide housing for more than one occupant. Some priest houses could have been, could be redeveloped into apartments or townhouses to provide low income members of the community with homes. The priests could be offered accommodation to live in one of the apartments. It's time for the Catholic Church to move on and update their outdated practices and by doing so free up money to release back into the Catholic into Catholic education and social justice programs. Government funds should be used to fund public schools only. Well, and that's a fun one, isn't it? Mm. Another response is forget all the rhetoric, just follow the money. Have a look at the portfolio budget statements for 2019 and 20. Budget, pa- budget related paper number 1.5. Education and training portfolio and note the extraordinary difference between private and public, public school funding. One third private gets 12 plus billion rising to 15 plus billion in 2021 and 22 and two-thirds i.e. public gets 8 billion plus rising to only 10 billion in 2021 and 22 and then there's the strange strange budget line in the funding in the private funding 40 plus million for private school representative bodies, i.e. centralised lobbying groups, $3 million special circumstances funding and $12 million adjustment assistance. And in the 2020-21, $156 million for choice and affordability funds, $40 million for for private school representatives, Mr Elder and his bishops, this has a very strange smell about it. No public school supporter can vote for the coalition. Sorry, but can Shorten do any better? The Greens talk about free education, but do they even have the intestinal fortitude to take on the publicly funded private school lobby? And another comment says, private schools, what a rort. Funding by our government should stop now. It's just another tax perk for the wealthy. For the wealthy. And another comment. Uh, didn't we already have a comprehensive expert report, i.e. Gonski, that the present government totally ignored in favour of politics and votes? Let's hope we can restore some equity into education this time. Well, they're very interesting, aren't they, Dale? Uh, But, of course, the history of the last 50 years is that they've tried to have needs policies, but they never work because the wealthy put the skids under them. Okay, now we have state schools are great schools. (laughs) 
Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great. Schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. <laughs> And to finish the dogs program, we've got great state schools. Now, I'm going to talk about a school that you'll never have heard of, and you've probably never been there. If you have, I'll be surprised. In a place called Ivanhoe in New South Wales. Um, it's about as isolated a school as you can get in Australia. Uh, it's equidistant between Burke, Broken Hill and Dubbo and Mildura and Albury. It's right there, smack back in the middle of absolute nowhere, and there's 40 kids go to this school. And there wouldn't be a school there if the public system wasn't there. And that's what I'm saying, because public schools boldly go where no one else would go because there's no money, and that's where they should be, because the public school system educates all people. It doesn't matter where they are. Mm. Now, in this school, more than half of the kids enrolled are Indigenous kids. The other other half aren't. Um, And there's about 6% of the kids um, don't come from a language background other than English. But let me tell you about it. It's an amazing school. Oh, by the way, we pay through the nose because this is, this is a school on the moon as far as everything else is concerned. It's, it's a lovely place, Ivanhoe, but it really isn't close to anywhere else. It takes about $40,000 a kid to educate, and they educate kids from prep to year 12. Okay? So they've got six teachers there, and each teacher out there has a distinctive teaching style, but they all have commitment to a supportive approach to a common goal or to a development of each of the 40 kids. It's an attractive school, well-manicured lawns, because the kids get out there and do it themselves. It's a very pleasant place to be out there, and it strives for excellence to develop the best for all kids. Now, there are approximately 40 kids from kindergarten to year 12 enrolled at school, as I said, and seven teaching staff, including the principal, head teacher, assistant principal, and one full-time ancillary staff and an Aboriginal educational support officer. It relies on various government support programs and adds up to the money that it needs to do what it does because it is educating in the toughest places, which is where this school... Now, what, what are the results? They're fine. They're fine. I'll bear in mind the ICSI value for this school in terms of the kids turning up. Median is a thousand. This school eight forty four. There's some really, really poor kids having a happy time. Six hours a day, prep to year twelve. So, congratulations. It's a school with Ivanhoe in the name, which is opposite to the Ivanhoe we know down here in Melbourne. It's the Ivanhoe Central School in a little town called Ivanhoe, in the middle of nowhere in New South Wales. You are our great state school of the week. Congratulations. Which brings us to the end of our program here on The Dogs. It's been good to have your company. Hopefully you've lasted through to the end to hear all about Ivanhoe. If you want to contact us, you can at our website, www.aedogs.info, or indeed you can find out more and get the podcast at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. And, of course, if you have a great state school, just give us a call and it'll get whacked in the pigeonhole. I'll do the research. Um, you can call the radio station, 3CR, 9419 Double seven, eight three double seven, and it has business hours too. Uh, just don't say by the Congress on the weekend because we are a community radio station run mainly by volunteers. So yeah, they won't be answering the phones on the weekend. So business hours is great. But until next week, it's been good to have your company here on the Dogs Program. It's bye for now. I saw joy here.
as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Joe, you're ten years dead. 